0: human understanding is not computable. And the Gödel Theorem tells you that our understanding is not a computation. I think the argument is pretty clear that what we do when we understand a proof in mathematics is not following an algorithm. Now, what is it in, in our abilities to think, perceive, conscious perception that transcends computation? Conscious beings came about in a way by natural selections, they were successful in the view I hold by probing the laws of physics at a much deeper level than we've seen yet, at this level where we see non-computable action. Mm. And this has to be, still. The, it was already the argument I gave in the in Epper's the New, New Mind, but it has to be at this place where we have to go
1: beyond current quantum theory. Welcome, everyone, to this replay episode of Into the Impossible, with legendary mathematical physicist and Nobel laureate, Sir Roger Penrose. Professor Penrose was an early, pre-pandemic guest in 2020 in our first studio at UC San Diego. Sir Penrose penned the first science book our host Brian Keating ever read, The Emperor's New Mind, a masterful work that resonates with relevance today with the rise of artificial intelligence. He argues that consciousness and the ability to understand cannot be explained by computation alone, but could emerge from quantum processes. Sir Roger's encomium of Professor Keating's 2018 book, Losing the Nobel Prize, is science come full circle. In 2020, Professor Penrose was awarded the Nobel Prize for his work on black hole formation. He's featured in Professor Keating's second book, think like a Nobel Prize winner. Listen to these two great minds discuss some of the most profound concepts in physics, cosmology, and how you're conscious of this episode. Please, keep into the impossible in your feed by subscribing and following. And for some extra credit, jump over to the YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's Dr. Brian Keating, and subscribe there too, where we just broke the 100,000 subscriber milestone. Remember to click the bell to receive alerts on new episodes as they drop. The video version of this episode and other videos with Sir Roger can be viewed there too. Please help make the show better by filling out our listener survey linked to in the show notes. And let us know what you think of the show in the form of a review like this one. From Tristan Zara, cutting edge science and passionate articulate explainers abound in this always stimulating journey through many different sciences and areas of technological and philosophical interest and now expand your mind with this replay episode of into the impossible with nobel laureate sir roger penrose and your host brian keating any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic open the pod bay doors please
2: help. uh welcome everybody to the into the impossible podcast production of the arthur c clark center for human imagination and the division of physical sciences at uc san diego and it's a treat to welcome uh, sir roger penrose back to uc san diego
0: pleasure certainly yes
2: yeah we're uh certainly Great to ex- be back <laughs> <laughs> thank you we're extracting a lot out of you in this visit uh we are uh g- grateful to you for hosting uh to be hosting these uh, many talks that you're giving. You gave one talk that was uh, more than standing room only earlier today. Uh, You're doing this interview now and tomorrow you're giving another talk. Uh, It's really quite generous of you. Thank you so much. And uh, I've come to expect that of you. You're gracious as as always and, and so responsive. And it couldn't be a greater treat to have you affiliated with our fine university. Um, When I was mentioning to some of my uh, followers online that you were coming, I wanted to, uh, to highlight that this is actually the fifth decade of this book here, The Emperor's New Mind. Uh, which is, uh, as I pointed out, was the first popular, so to speak, science book that I ever read as a as a teenager in 1989 when it when it first came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been remarking along with my friends on how much has changed, but also how little has changed. And I thought we'd take this opportunity on the fifth decade of its of its existence on planet earth to kind of review some of the uh discoveries that you've had and that science has progressed since the writing of the book I know it had a second edition and other editions since this first edition that I have here um but I wanted to get a, a general impression from you is it is, did this book exceed your expectations did, what did it did it sort of touch a nerve in the popular consciousness that it's still a bestseller to this very day for you
0: I'm not sure I initially thought that it might either disappear without trace, mm-hmm. or that maybe there would be a little attention paid to paid to, to it. Well, it was around about the same time as Stephen Hawking had written his book, Yes, the A Brief History of Time,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, I remember asking or <clears throat> noting that that his book had been had a foreword written by. Science oh, Carl That's yes and uh, so I thought well i better try and do something this <laughs> <laughs> and the best I could do I thought well I thought I happen to know Martin Gardner so I, right. so I thought um if he wrote a decent forward or if he was prepared to do it first of all I wasn't at all sure whether he'd be shocked by the point of view I was presenting right <clears throat> in fact he was very in favor of favorable expressed. He said he rather thought of things the same way, Mm -hmm. and he wrote a very nice foreword. And then I thought, well, perhaps it won't disappear without trace. At least some people will read it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was very naive, and I didn't expect this sort of... Mixed is the wrong word. There was a lot of antagonism Mm -hmm. from certain quarters. Mm -hmm. I mean, I expected there might be people who would object to what I'd written from the artificial intelligence community, because I was trying to say there was a bit more than um, computation going on in, in human thinking, and also that I might have trouble with the religious community, because I was certainly not expressing a religious view, and I was trying to go against that somewhat. Well, not general religious, but but somehow that there was something outside science which had to explain our conscious beings and so on. What I hadn't expected was a lot of <laughs> philosophers objected to what I was saying, too. I think they just thought I was too sloppy. Mm-hmm. I was sort of expecting that there would be a lot of young people picking up on the ideas and maybe writing to me or something. My initial experience was nothing of the sort. <laughs> there were only old, retired people who wrote to me. <laughs> and there were old, retired people who had time to read the book, I guess. And amongst the people, not just the retired older, and a few young people there were, usually people who got inspired by the book, one in particular who became the, um, there was a man named Michael Wills who mm-hmm. had wrote a, he was intending to have a series of television programs on based on the book. It ended up being a, one program, mm-hmm. but he had as a researcher <clears throat> somebody who was uh, doing the work, and then he sort of gave up half the way through and I thought maybe they'd had a row or something. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Well, actually he'd become interested in something else." And uh, he actually turned out he became a singer, and he became the, lead, the leading singer in Britain, <laughs> oh, uh, really? a tenor a tenor singer, yes. Oh, really? So I didn't mind him. He, he was one of the people who one of the few people, as a youngster who had written to me about the book, So well, that's a decent excuse to. <laughs> yes. But one of the main things that I guess was a positive aspect of this. Was that Stuart Hameroff read my book? Right. And uh, he more or less wrote to me to say, well, the one thing that seems to be missing from your point of view was these things called microtubules. Mm-hmm. You see, I'd written the book feeling, you know, quite. Uh, Uh, I I knew a bit about physics and mathematics and I would try and learn a bit about neurophysiology and maybe I'll find enough about it to see where my ideas had any relevance to that and I got to the end and I came to the conclusion I didn't see any relevance (laughs) mainly that nerve propagation you see I need to have, preserve some kind of quantum coherence Mm -hmm. and I just learnt that nerve propagation, wasn't. there's no hope (laughs) that the signals there's always a big electric fields which would de- decohere, you, all your quantum coherence get lost in the rest of the brain and it was completely hopeless. So I sort of had a rather feeble ending which did not <laughs> I didn't really believe in myself but Stuart wrote to me and said you, I think the key thing you're missing is these things called microtubules. Mm-hmm. Now i never heard of microtubules and I get lots of letters and email well emails didn't exist in those days but letters from people crackpots of one yes. kind or another so i thought oh here's another you see and then i thought these things look he's got a picture of these things it looks like they must be real so i look at them up and i say yeah they're real all right and it seemed to me these were structures far for, far far more pro- probable plausible mm-hmm. things which could preserve quantum coherence i mean it's still a challenge a major challenge mm-hmm. But the, kind of, the fact that they were tubes, and the fact that they were symmetrical in various ways, and, and it looked to me there was a be- much, much better chance there. So it sort of started a collaboration with Stuart,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, we formulated this general point of view called orchestrated objective reduction.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Objective reduction is something I treated in the book,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> but although that's one of the things I think the g- g- exact form I had was not correct, Hmm. There are a few things I would say were wrong in the book, Mm -hmm. but not majorly wrong, that is to say it wasn't the right criterion, but it was the sort of idea which I still believe in, namely that it's gravitation, which is the place you have to look for where quantum mechanics, it needs something uh, to make it consistent. The theory we have at the moment is a com- combination of two things which mutually, mutually contradict each other. And people sort of live with that and try to live with it and make sense of it. But they don't normally take the view there's something wrong, mm-hmm. which was the view I took and which I still hold. Mm-hmm. And it's really the second book, which was Shadows of the Mind, where I more or less uh, well, I introduced the microtubules there and the point of view which I still believe in mm-hmm. with regard to the how to fix up quantum mechanics.
2: And that the uh, that the microtubules have sort of a geometric <coughs> connection to them or sort of a natural geometry to them is no surprise that appeals to your deep <laughs> love of geometry. Uh, but is there something deeper to it other than yes. they're just their geometric structure?
0: Well, I think there is. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's not been made use of very much in the later developments, I mean, it's already there. That is these structures that are Well, actually, microtubules come in two forms. They're two different lattices. I didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. One of them is what's called the A lattice, which is highly symmetrical. And the other is the B lattice, which is not quite so symmetrical. It's got a seam down one edge Mm -hmm. along the tube. Whereas the ones which are highly symmetrical seem to me have a much better prospect of uh, preserving quantum coherence. So you want quantum effects to be preserved at a a big level. Mm -hmm. And symmetry is a good way to do that. Mm -hmm. So when you say the geometrical structure, that's part of it which is appealing to me. And there's this thing called the Jan Teller effect. Mm -hmm. This is when you have a highly symmetrical structure. Well, maybe it could be a a crystal-like thing Mm -hmm. or it could be like a tube with different kinds of symmetries, and the high symmetry means that you can have, well, there's a sort of lowest level of activity, which is the sort of lowest quantum level, and that is what's called degenerate, so you have information at that level, or it's sort of quantum information at that level, which is shielded from the next level, so there's a big gap between that level and the next, and you get that when you have very symmetrical structures, Mm -hmm. and the microtubules. like a band gap. Yes, Mm -hmm. a band gap. <clears throat> microtubules I and mean, there's a lot of other problems mm-hmm. which it simply doesn't resolve just like that mm-hmm. but it gave it seemed to me there was a lot of much much more promise mm-hmm. in microtubules than anything else i would seen before in uh in neurophysiology so one
2: thing that distinguishes your research it's not without its speculations and and uh new and, and novel ideas but that in almost every case that i've found in your research you predict effects which are in principle possible to prove wrong in other words they are possible to be falsified yeah. um, you know to date you've enjoyed success and they haven't been false many things have not been falsified and in fact many of your uh, discoveries have been have stood this test of time and test of other experimental and mathematical uh, scrutiny um, is that something that's important to you? obviously you you know of the and our listeners will know of, you know popper, Karl Popper <coughs> and his uh, his sort of um, uh, you know, objectivist and and how do we how do we determine if something is scientific? Well, it must be falsifiable. Oh, and, yes. and 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 I always point out that um, I believe, and you talk about Gödel and his incompleteness theorem very um, frequently in Emperor's new mind. Um, but I feel like physicists almost have an envy of Gödel's incompleteness <laughs> theorem, in that in that we have no way of of objectively showing that our assumptions are 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 built upon perhaps in in you know incompatible uh, premises or un unprovable or unfalsifiable uh, axioms, and I wonder you know. To what extent do you, are you guided by Popper and the falsification demarcation theory? Is that something that's important to you? Would you work on something that is not? Because it could be tomorrow our colleagues find that microtubules are just impossible to be, you know, they they can't maintain coherence beyond, you know, nanosecond level time scale, something like that.
0: Well, you see, I, I think your point is, is well taken, but there is a major part of what I've done in relation to physics and how it relates to mathematics, which at least as yet, has not been falsifiable. And, you know, I rather regret the fact that it's not. (laughs) This is the theory which I refer to as Twister theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, it's very much motivated by relativity facts and uh, curious things like the the nature of the celestial sphere. Mm-hmm. You think of the sky, and that's a sphere, and the structure of that sky is what's called a conformal structure. Mm-hmm. And this is a thing I got interested in very early, that if you imagine two space travelers getting very, passing each other very close, and they look at the same sky, but they're traveling at almost very close to the speed of light, one with respect Ralsy. to the other. And they look up at the same sky, sky, and there's a distortion of the sky they see. The stars are slightly different spots, and so on. There's a thing called aberration, mm-hmm. which has to do with the motion. But it has a very curious feature, that it preserves angles. Mm-hmm. That is to say, if you if you imagined an angle in the sky, if three stars close together and at a certain angle, that the other observer would see the same angle. So it's what the transformation of one observer to the sky to the other is what's called conformal. Mm -hmm. And this is a kind of geometry which I got very interested in, uh, called conformal geometry. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know about Euclidean geometry, but that's to do with lengths, Mm -hmm. but this is to do with angles. And it's a much richer geometry. And the fact that it applies to the sky is an indication of something in a completely different subject, the you might say the two big revolutions of 20th century physics, one is relativity, and here we see in special relativity. It doesn't work in Newtonian theory. Relativity, the the conformal nature of the transformation of the sky. But the other is in quantum mechanics and you have these complex numbers which are all intimately related to this conformal structure. And they play a big role when you think about spins of particles. And again, you get this same sphere, which is a conformal sphere, playing a fundamental role in physics. And this has to do with the complex numbers which involve the square root of minus one, sort of mysterious numbers which are at the basis of quantum mechanics. And so I kind of thought of this as a link between relativity and quantum mechanics. And Twister theory, I won't go into it here, Mm -hmm. but it's it's a mathematical formalism. It has particular features. One of them is you have to have three space dimensions and one time dimension. So when I was being confronted with things like string theory, I quite like the idea when strings were initially put forward, mm-hmm. but when they seemed to consider you needed to have 26 mm-hmm. dimensions of space-time, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. 10 mm-hmm. dimensions, or both together in some curious way, mm-hmm. it didn't <laughs> appeal to me at all, because the link between the quantum mechanics and, uh, and relativity which is through this conformal sphere, only works when you have three space dimensions and one time dimension. And so the theory which I developed, which I call Twister theory, was based upon this very specific structure, and it doesn't work in other numbers of dimension. Well, you could start doing it in other dimension. it doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. And it took me years and years to try and make it work with general relativity, and only relatively recently did I see how these things fit together and with quantum mechanics. And curious feature is that it needs to have, this was a big blow to me initially, the cosmological constant. <laughs> see, this was this in- number introduced by Einstein in 1917 for the wrong reason. You see, he wanted a static universe. He liked a universe which was sort of spherical in space, sort of closed up on itself, and sort of sat there forever. And this was just about at the time when people were becoming convinced that the universe was expanding. But Einstein introduced this cosmological constant term, which is usually called lambda, like a V upside down. Mm -hmm. And this was as soon as he was convinced that the universe was actually expanding and this model doesn't work, he sort of retracted this cosmological term and regarded it as his greatest blunder. Now, you see, all the cosmology books were sort of, oh, Einstein says this, number has to be there, and so they all consider the a cosmological constant, and so on, so, and I, sort of like everybody else, a lot, a lot of people thought well, it shouldn't really be there, it's much nicer not having it there, and my trying to solve a big problem in Twister theory I thought I needed it to be zero and I remember having this conversation with uh, with Jerry Ostreicher, and I was saying do we really have to believe from these superno- distant supernovae, they were observations of distant exploding stars, supernovae, that there seemed to be evidence for this expansion, exponential expansion of the universe, over and beyond the expansion that we already thought was consistent with the Einstein equations. And that seemed to indicate that there was this cosmological constant, that Einstein had regarded as the biggest blunder, <laughs> it had to be there, it had to be positive. Mm-hmm. And I said to Jerry, I said, well, do we really have to believe that? I mean, because perhaps it's just dust out there, as <laughs> many people said. That's and right. he looked at me and said, look, that's all. not the point. <laughs> there are so many things in cosmology that are much better understood. They work so much better with this cosmological term. And I thought, okay, I'll give it I'm prepared to give it up, <laughs> what you say. <laughs> so it was a good thing because the later views that I had absolutely depend on having this cosmological constant. Mm-hmm. It has to be positive. It has to be there. We have to see this exponential expansion. And if it hadn't been for Jerry
2: convincing me it was there, I'd have been still going down the wrong route that I <laughs> yeah. was going down before. Uh, no, we say, you know, Einstein's biggest blunder turned out to be that he called it a blunder. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Actually. Well, I guess he wasn't right in the way he was using it. That's right. But it was... Uh,
0: I mean, it was a great insight because well, it's basically the only thing you could do to his equations without wrecking them.
2: Yeah, and right. he knew you could do that, and he had great confidence in the equations. Yeah, uh, absolutely, especially yes. as uh, yes. after the nineteen <laughs> nineteen the Eddington eclipse. Yes, right. Um, yeah. So, in the book, one, one thing that helped me as a young, you know, uh, scientifically, mathematically inclined uh, young person when I read this in nineteen eighty nine was um, the way that you very carefully lay out your your opinions, but in a very even-handed fashion, as to different theories of math and physics, and 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 you kind of give a rank ordering to them, which you which you talk about, and I want to revisit that on this, you know, f- fifth decade, I I yeah, all that, <laughs> yeah. So the categories I have them here are yes. tentative, yes. useful, and superb. Yeah. And one of the most amazing things you do is you start off with Euclid, and you say Euclid. Euclidean geometry is actually in, was in your uh, characterization a physical theory, and I wonder if you can yes. talk more about that. You I seem know, I to regard it as superb. Yeah, far as I mean. and it yeah, is superb according yes, to yes. yeah. So can you well, comment on works. That? how so it it extraordinarily happens? well. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I guess uh, it's an interesting question how the ancients looked at it. Um, I mean, the the ideas of Euclidean geometry were, were sort of based on angles and lengths and triangles, and sort of the view that a big triangle and a little triangle, the same geometry, applied. If you had a really huge triangle, and if you added up its angles, it would still add up to 180 degrees. And uh, and people tried, there was a big activity where this, um, I forgetting his name now, this chap who tried to prove that the angles had to add up I mean, Euclid realized that there was a puzzle here, Mm -hmm. that you needed to have a special assumption, which it was the parallel postulate, usually phrased in terms of if you have a line in a plane and a point in that plane which is not on the line, then there is only exactly one line, straight line, Mm -hmm. through that point which didn't meet the other line. Mm -hmm. And and it was thought that somehow you should be able to deduce that from the others and it was a real insight yeah. for euclid to see that that was an independent assumption right and uh, and it took not just the ancients but many people and they d- tried to prove it and saccheri and spent his entire life trying to prove it and at the end more or less discovered what's called hyperbolic geometry mm-hmm. and there were other people who was Lambert was somebody who proved beautiful theorems which had to depend on this other kind of geometry that people didn't think existed. Uh-huh. <laughs> and about how you add up the angles of the triangle and how much they fall short of 180 degrees as a measure of the angle of the triangle, uh-huh. area of the triangle. Right. An amazing thing. And how could you prove a thing like when when it, you don't believe that, that there is any other geometry? Right. I don't know. I'm very interested to know what what Lambert's psyche was here, <laughs> I think he probably at certain times of his life thought there was a, that it was consistent to have di- different times of geometry,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and other types he probably thought it was absurd. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to catch the types times when he thought it was consistent because he had this beautiful theorem in it. But uh, then in, in Gauss, who mm-hmm. more importantly tried to find well, it's an interesting question because he 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 part of his job was to, to do geodesy. Yeah. So he's actually measuring very big triangles.
2: The yeah, mountaintops. And, and
0: people were trying right. to think, oh, well, he's just doing ge- geodesy. And he's, but I think, at the back of his mind, he was really trying to see whether the geometry was Euclidean or not. Right. Because he knew, he knew that there were other kinds of geometry. right? And it was really interesting how the history, people kind of toying with, were there other kinds of geometry? Or not? But the fact that Euclidean geometry is so precise, and it was sort of laid out as this wonderful theory, which it is, Mm -hmm. an amazing theory. And it lasted for, goodness knows how many centuries, before people, A, discovered there were other kinds of geometries, and B, with Einstein and, uh, um, well, primarily Einstein, Mm -hmm. but realizing that you needed to, uh, in order to describe a physics in which the principle of equivalence, that is, Again, a thing, a lot of these ideas are ancient, but people didn't know quite what significance was. I mean, right. this was going back to Galileo. It's not just going back to Archimedes and, and going back to and uh, people. But the fact that a gravitational field is equivalent to an acceleration. Mm-hmm. And so Galileo was extremely insightful. And you imagine, you know, dropping these things from the,
2: in a boat, and and tower,
0: or, or whatever it was, right. and they fall together, mm-hmm. and they somehow you can cancel out gravity. Mm-hmm. And there's a wonderful description he has in, in one of his books where he talks about fireworks, hmm. and you see the fireworks and they explode, and you see these spheres, beautiful spheres, and they come, they come, and they fall, and they remain spheres. Right. And he pointed this out, and there was a deep insight in that. It's just as though there was no gravity, and the acceleration you. If you're free, freely falling, it's as though there's no gravity. You experience no gravity. And that's a huge insight, mm-hmm.
2: which had to wait until Einstein mm-hmm. <laughs> to realize the importance of it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that was in the Discorsi, I think, the last book that Galileo wrote. Yes. So I want to read from Emperor's New Mind a paragraph that speaks to me to this very day. And I remember being moved by it way back when. He said Great works of art are indeed closer to God than our lesser ones. It is a feeling not uncommon amongst artists that in their greatest works, they are revealing eternal truths which have some kind of prior ethereal existence, while their lesser works may be more arbitrary of nature more mortal constructions. Likewise, an engineering innovation with a beautiful economy uh, where a great deal is achieved in the scope of the application of some simple, unexpected idea might appropriately be described as a discovery rather than an invention. Now, this harkens back to whether or not mathematical truths are in yes. some way discovered or invented. Yes, indeed. And I wonder if you can weigh in with your vast experience <laughs> gleaned both before and after this book. And where do you feel fall now? Well, I certainly I
0: haven't changed my view in that particular respect. Mm-hmm. I haven't said others. Yeah, I think the mathematics... Well, it's a platonic view, you would say, that the mathematics has its own world. Mm-hmm. You see, I like to do this with an illustration, which I th- think first had an, in, in Shadows of the Mind, mm-hmm. where I, I had three types of existence, in a sense. And if you're a mathematician, you very strongly get the feeling that it's like a bit like geology or Um, archaeology or something, you're exploring a world out there. You're discovering things which are out there. Mm -hmm. You don't invent the theorems. Mm -hmm. You discover truths which are in some sense out there in a world, but it's not the world, the physical world, because the things you find then, you know, you try to draw a triangle and it's not quite and how do you draw a straight line mm-hmm. when the more you know about the nature of matter, you see it's granular in
2: certain respects. Yeah, you're talking here about
0: what is the number three. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. Very difficult. Uh, and
0: to so you, it, when you think about the mathematics, you really have to think about it in this platonic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that you're creating it. I mean, you sometimes do things which are... Simply sufficiently wild that they they look as though you you've um, you've made made it all up but in a certain sense. If it really works beautifully, there's something out there which is out of your control, and it's much more like exploration. Mm-hmm. You could say this is a feeling that one has, but it's more, I think, strong. You see, this is one of the worlds, the world, yeah. the platonic world, which of mathematics, which I sort of draws this sphere at the top mm-hmm. of the picture, and then a little bit of that world, and it's only a very tiny bit, because if you you look at any Article in or any journal of pure mathematics, and you will see the articles in there which have any relevance whatsoever to the physical world. Right. Very, very tiny.
2: Yeah. And they might even
0: have a number in it, right? <laughs> it's it's even a number. Pure symbolic. That's right. And it's a very tiny bit of it, which it, sometimes it turns out later things, and you find, well, and behold, this this beautiful theorem which was in that pure mathematical work, and, and now it's found an application. Right. So you see that. But when you think of the whole totality of the mathematical work, that's been done. That's explored, if you like. It's a really tiny part of that world—a very um, productive, magical, particularly magical part of that world, which seems to be—and I have it sort of projecting out to the physical world. The laws that we see being extraordinarily precise. When I say uh, Euclidean geometry, is oh, even though not, we know now not exactly mirrored in the in the geometry of the physical world. It's a basic ingredient of everything we think about in geometry. Um, So it has a huge impact into into physics. Mm -hmm. But then the more we learn about physics, it's governed by equations and geometrical ideas and things, and we reduce them to mathematics. And in that mathematics, we can gain enormous precision in the way we describe and understand the way the physical world operates. Now this is a in some sense, the view we have, and this is the view I have, is that this small part of the mathematical world encompasses, in a certain sense, the whole of the physical world. So I draw this in this rather strange way. A little tiny part of the world, the mathematical world, seems to encompass the behavior of this physical world. We seem to, It seems to be when we get our laws right, they really be it almost as though we reduce them to mathematics. Mm-hmm. You might say, "Well, what is a what is a rock?" Well, this rock is made of mo- molecules and things like that. And what are the molecules made of? Well, they're made of atoms. What are the atoms made of? Well, they're made of fundamental particles, electrons, and, and you worry about the neutrons and protons, and then the gluons and things. Mm-hmm. What are they? You say, "Well, they're with." What sticks the particles together? Are they particles themselves? Well, then you worry about the photons. Well, you have these as they used to be fields, and then you see they're particles. But then you say, what is an electron? Well, the best you can do is it's a solution of the Dirac equation. You say, well, that's a pretty abstract notion. (laughs) And you kind of have to resort to mathematics when you Mm -hmm. try to probe reality at Mm -hmm. its deepest levels. And then there's the next question, you see, which is my third world which is the world of conscious experience. And so the type of view I'm expressing, well, both in The Empress New Mind and Shadows of the Mind, more more explicitly in in this picture, is that there's a third world, which is the world of conscious experience. Some people take that as primary, and they try to build everything else out of that. I think that's a pretty hopeless task, Mm -hmm. because our sensory experiences are very hard to describe any of these other things in a, in a precise way. But nevertheless, that's one, we have different ways of looking at it. But again, it seems to be a very small part of the world of physics which is actually supports consciousness. So, okay, human beings, sure. I think it's, it extends much more broadly than that. And animals, maybe many animals, but not all animals, I wouldn't know. But certainly, I think the difference between human beings and and certain animals is okay, great in certain respects, but not fundamental. Mm-hmm. I think that people who are dog owners, for example, are pretty convinced their dogs are conscious. <laughs> I think octopuses are conscious. Uh-huh. Elephants are way down though below that. I think mice are conscious too. I, my, I used to have infestations of mice in the place I used to live in. And I you can, I'd admire the cleverness of these little creatures sometimes, <laughs> how they could step over the trap that way, quite deliberately, and take out all, all the food, food and completely cleaned out, <laughs> and they hadn't touched the thing which would trap them I just have a great admiration for the mice. So there's something which goes deep down um, mm-hmm. Into the into the world, but it's still a tiny part mm-hmm. of this physical world. You know,
2: in the Penrose hierarchy of of um, you know superb, useful, and uh, tentative. Where yes. where do you rank? Because obviously geometry is superb, and obviously mathematics is superb. Well, mathematics is, I would say, in, you have to spread it out of mm-hmm. all the other. Sure, things. sure, sure. So yeah. it's not just mathematics as it's mm-hmm. itself. But yes. do you feel, in principle, a uh, theory of consciousness? Could be superb. Is it possible for it to be superb, or is it only possible for it to be useful? I think if we get it right, we're a long way from. What would it look like? What would such
0: a theory look like? Faintest idea. All I can say about it in the the studies of the books I've written is a little chip. Hmm. I would say, and the tiny thing I'm trying to say is that consciousness. Well, again, it's a little part. Consciousness in. all sorts of things, you know, pain and Mm -hmm. perception of the color blue and Mm -hmm. happiness and uh, love and and all sorts of things. Um, I don't talk about most of those things in my book. Mm -hmm. I just talk about the one thing that I could say anything about which is understanding. And I concentrate on that because there are these theorems of logic, most particularly Gödel's theorem and Turing's analysis of of it in terms of computation, the ideas of computation and so on, lead me to believe that human understanding is not computable, it's not a computation. Mm-hmm. And the, and a lot of people, that's where a lot of people argued with me because somehow it tells us that an algorithm, you see, we, we have these wonderful computers and what they can do, and they do incredible things, I agree with that but they run on algorithms. Mm-hmm. And this is what we understand, this notion of an algorithm, which was, well, it really goes back to when mm-hmm. it was Arabic, now there is but that was Turing and a few other people, posts and church and people, who re- really made clear the idea of what an algorithm is, what a computation mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And the Gödel theorem tells you that our understanding is not a computation. I mean, this is a story which is you know, a lot of people complain about, but I think the argument is pretty clear that what we do when we understand a proof in mathematics is not following an algorithm. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear because of the Girdle thing. It right. says, whenever you, what do you mean by proof? You see, well, a proof is using certain kinds of rules and you have to use them correctly. And if you really think of it as a proof, you've got to believe that those rules only give you true statements. Mm-hmm. Now it's that thing, the belief that it only gives you true statements which enables you to demonstrate the truth of a proposition, which Gödel produces very ingeniously, a proposition which you can see must be true. Nevertheless, it cannot be derived by means of whatever rules you start with. Right, as long as you believe those rules only give you truths, mm-hmm. then you must believe this Gödel statement is also true and not derivable by means of those rules. Now, when I learned that, I was t- stunned mm-hmm. by it. You see, it wasn't that you can prove certain things can't derived in certain ways. It's much stronger than that. Say, so saying whatever procedure you use, if it's following definite rules which you believe in, Mm -hmm. which you trust, Mm -hmm. algorithm which you trust, then you can see how to transcend that. Now what is it in, in our abilities to think, perceive, conscious perception that transcends computation? Mm. There are lots of arguments people present, and one of these is, well, you know, the algorithm we use in our heads is so complicated that we'll never be able to see what the girdle thing is. We are sure. But the point is that, how did it come about by natural selection? It has to have been by relatively simple things, which we can certainly understand, these very complicated things which you can maybe have a computer which could do things which are pretty hard to see why they're true, because it's very, very elaborate. That's not what was naturally selected for. what was naturally selected for was this more basic principle of an understanding, and that is not a computation. It's
2: something I don't know what it is. Don't mm-hmm. ask me what it is. No. That's a, the so you're real distinguishing challenge. between yes. com- computability and actual comprehension. And it's
0: the, the comprehension mm-hmm. of why the algorithm does what it's supposed to do mm-hmm. and it's not simply. Trying this and that and that, zillin' it right. times.
2: Inductively. In finished.
0: a certain sense, I mean, there's an <clears a certain throat> irony here because, okay, uh, conscious beings came about in a way by natural selections and. Which is an it algorithmic, wasn't right? <laughs> some way of picking out the ones that were more successful. But they were successful, in the view I hold, by probing the laws of physics at a much deeper level than we've seen yet. Mm-hmm at this level where we see non-computable action. Mm. And this has to be, still, the, it was already the argument I gave in The in the Emperor's New, New Mind, but although not quite the right criterion in my view, it has to be at this place where we have to go beyond current quantum theory. And the argument came about, which is what formulated the view basically when I was my, I think it was my first year as a graduate student, mm. when I went to courses by a man called Steen on mathematical logic, Mm -hmm. Bondi on general relativity, Mm -hmm. and Dirac, a great quantum Mm -hmm. physicist on Mm -hmm. quantum mechanics. And I tried to see what in the physical world can be not put on a computer, basically. Mm -hmm. And basically my conclusion was it was this curious feature of quantum mechanics where you have an inconsistency, it's basically making a measurement. You mm-hmm. see, quantum theory consists of two parts. One is following an equation, the Schrodinger equation. equation. Mm-hmm. And it just, that's a thing you could put on a computer. Unitary evolution. Unitary right, evolution. Smooth. And the other oh, yes. is where you don't do unitary right. evolution. <laughs> right. You make a measurement, Abandoned. you collapse the wave function, and you cheat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you have to do that right. to to ha- have the world we see. Mm-hmm. And so this scene to me, that's the place where the non-computable physics has to come in. I don't see in detail how it comes in. Mm -hmm. And it's a big mystery. Mm -hmm. But my claim is you've got to harness that bit and that somehow the conscious brain is at some point making use of this part of this place. It's not just that it uses quantum mechanics. Many people poo-poo that already. They say, oh, no, it's classical physics. Oh, you don't know what quantum mechanics. No, but we see that's wrong already because in things like... uh, photosynthesis and maybe bird migration. There are other places where we seem to see effects which do d- depend on crucially on quantum effects. Well, ch- chemistry is already quantum. Mm-hmm. But these are things a little bit
2: outside that. Saying like room temperature, and yes, short room, coherence. Room, and
0: tempe- right. Preserving of quantum coherence at room mm-hmm. temperature. Mm-hmm. So, sure, the argument is nature has found a way to do it. Deep in the in the brain, in, in much more likely it'll be to do with microtubules, um, and probably
2: how they relate to other structures. And um, so, anything with a microtubule could participate in quantum mechanical measurement. Maybe even it doesn't
0: say that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are these two structures: the A lattice and the B lattice. Mm-hmm. And the A lattice is very symmetrical. Mm-hmm. The B lattice is not so symmetrical. The B lattice is still symmetrical, but not mm-hmm. so much. And most microtubules in the body, all over the place, tend to be Mm B-lattice. The A-lattice ones seem to be much more promising for doing things in the brain probably and maybe conscious actions. So the guess is that whatever is really responsible for conscious action is not just microtubules, but A-lattice microtubules. And there is some theoretical work done by various people which does seem to indicate that. That's certainly for the future. I think that's way
2: ahead of what we have at the moment. Are there models, you know, mice or octopi, or yeah? I mean, are we able to test in living structures that these things can occur? I mean, uh, Schrödinger cat experiment supervised by an octopus or something (laughs) something that the folks at PETA want to. Well, I think going to that level is unlikely for a while,
0: for Mm -hmm. a long term. I think it's much more likely probing. areas of the brain, not so much areas of the brain, but exactly what's going on when. And there are things, you know, it's outside my area of expertise, but there are sort of waves of activity involving different layers in the brain. And where the conscious activity seems to come in is where there are large numbers of these certain kinds of cells called pyramidal cells. Mm. I don't know enough about it to know exactly there is a big question, you see, which people often raise, and that is, there are far more cells, neurons, I only re- recently learned it's more, I knew it was comparable, yeah. in this part of the brain called the cerebellum. Mm-hmm. Now, the cerebellum is not the people usually, but people you think of, it's just part of the time, right. mm-hmm. with the old convolutions all that. It's a part which looks much more like a ball of knitting mm. underneath and at the back, mm. It has more neurons, considerably more than there hmm. are, in the, mm-hmm. and more connections between neurons. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be pretty well unconscious.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's it's activated when you do very precise motions. You know, if you become an expert tennis player or
2: mm-hmm.
0: play the piano beautifully well, you don't think every moment. You know, where do I put my middle finger? Mm-hmm. So you exactly what spot? that's controlled pretty well by unconscious actions. And the precision needed in these actions are carried out by the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. I mean, initially you have to learn about them in the cerebrum part, but when they become unconscious, controlled with such unconscious precision that you need at these great levels of expertise, or even when you're walking down the street probably, Mm -hmm. certainly when you're driving the car and not thinking about it, it's probably controlled by the cerebellum. Mm -hmm now that doesn't seem to be conscious right what's the difference well i don't know but Stuart will say there are no there are no pyramidal cells in the cerebellum hmm. and and the pyramidal cells have ma- many more microtubules, microtubules in them and they're organized in a different way from those in the, the lattice. cerebellum uh-huh. that's a kind of thing one could explore more mm-hmm. and see to what extent is it that these structures with more microtubules and more a-lattice microtubules maybe actually seem to be more concerned with conscious thinking. And you can it's definitely true that some parts of the brain are much, much more to do with consciousness mm-hmm. than others. Well, that's certainly true of the, with the, the cerebellum. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what the question is with other parts of the cerebrum.
2: And on a, on a practical level, I'm curious to get your perspective on recent developments in things like quantum computing, you, you t- very presciently talked in this book about not only chess and this is before deep blue it defeated yes. Gary Kasparov but you, you talked about the game go which is uh, which was recently Google's uh, version of the yes. go playing algorithm beat it uh, the best human yes, human being yes. uh, you talked about all these things in the late 80s it's really it's really amusing to look back uh, the other things you talked about quantum teleportation there's a charming uh, oh, yeah, chapter so, so. where you talk about you know taking the molecules of a brick and and replacing them and is it the same brick and then you say well what's there's in a brick in your brain uh, yeah, and so. could you do these things you know to this so I'm interested with all the technological developments in quantum computing that we've recently achieved quantum supremacy and and things like that. What's your uh from the standpoint of the long view of, of history, how important is this era in modern, in modern times, how will you feel like it will be regarded in the future? Was this a critical time, or is it It's very hard for me to judge at the mm-hmm. moment. I mean,
0: certainly the quantum computers that they have now, and they've m- made a lot of progress, are not like the ones that were being considered before, where you might have something like a classical computer, but then <laughs> you have sort of introduced quantum superpositions and calculations, mm-hmm. and so on. They're basically a different kind of structure and they're not as far as i know really universal machines mm-hmm. see one of the wonderful things about ordinary computers if i can call them ordinary mm-hmm. is that depending on this notion developed by turing and church and posts and girdle and people of computability being a universal concept mm-hmm. so you can build up through very simple ingredients, a machine which can in principle do any computation. Mm-hmm. Now this is, this, these ideas are developed into, of course lots of ingenious ideas go into it, but the modern computers are basically universal computing machines. Mm-hmm. So any kind of algorithm you can put on the computer. Mm-hmm. Now, with the quantum machines, it's really a very small number of problems. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're very specific ones. That they can right. do very well. Simulate Hamiltonians. Not, and. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm aware, they're not really general-purpose machines. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not really quite mm-hmm. at that level. Maybe mm-hmm. they will become... Mm-hmm. And maybe there will be a point. It's, you see, I sometimes comment on this. You see, in the old days, people used to say, "Well, you get better computers." This is before the quantum computers. Right. You get better, better machines. The smaller you make them, so you can get smaller and smaller chips, and then they become smaller and smaller and smaller, and they much more effective and you get more power out of the machine. And then there's a certain limit, because at a certain point you run into the problems of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. So they say the quantum limit, you see, that'll stick us up at some point. Well then, of course, people say, no, well. Once you know what's going on at the quantum level, you can actually harness the quantum level. And so you have this idea of a quantum computer, which enables you to transcend, at least to some degree, what you can do with a classical machine. And So maybe something similar might come later on, where people say, well, there's a certain level, a limit to what you can do with your quantum machines, because it's, if you have too much mass moving around, then you're going to run into the limit where the Quantum mechanics doesn't hold, and you've got to go beyond it, and so there will be a a limit there Mm -hmm. the state reduction limit of quantum computers. Mm -hmm. And then maybe somebody says, Well, we've got maybe by then (laughs) some great theory which tells you which goes beyond standard quantum mechanics, and then maybe you can do construct a device which goes beyond it by taking advantage of this. I think I'm I'm glad I won't be alive by then because (laughs) I, I, I. I think if these things do come about, I'm
2: a little bit worried about what may be done with them. Yeah, I wish you a long life. I wish that—that's <laughs> that, the only thing I disagree with you. I don't—I don't want you to not to to leave the mortal <laughs> coil too soon because I, I want to see. And actually, that segues maybe to perhaps to my final question, <clears throat> which um has to do with all these various. Um, Novel ideas that you've had, and perhaps no other, certainly no other modern physicist has had con- contributions as diverse as cosmology, as consciousness, as uh, twister theory, as uh, the, the talking uh, computation and artificial intelligence. If you could ask, you know, as Einstein used to call him the old one god, if you could <laughs> if you could get the answer to one of these you know many topics that you've that you've researched yes. you know throughout your life, throughout your very productive career, which is the thing that most fascinates you, which is the thing that most captivates your your imagination. Well, you see it's a difficult question because <clears throat> at the moment, the thing
0: which excites me most is the cosmology.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: but there you see it excites me because you see, I have a certain uh, wild idea, which I think may well be true, and most standard cosmologists don't believe me, you see. Okay. But there are bits of evidence, well, we're beginning to see,
2: which do suggest that maybe there is some truth in this model. And You're speaking about the, just for I'm the listeners, you're speaking about the conformal, the conformal cyclic model, cosmology.
0: Which says that the Big Bang was not really the beginning. Mm-hmm. It was the conformal continuation I talked about the conformal geometry where big and small,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you're not interested in, you're not interested in size. Mm-hmm. But What I'm trying to say is in the Big Bang, because the energies are so big and the particles become effectively massless, they can't tell big from small. Mm-hmm. So at that stage, There's the kind of geometry doesn't know big from small is important. The other place when you can't tell big from small is an extremely remote future where the universe expands and expands exponentially and you mostly photons running around and they don't know big from small and you've got the black holes and then they eventually evaporate away by hawking evaporation Mm -hmm. and then you've got nothing left that doesn't It's not quite true. You have to be (laughs) careful about that. But roughly speaking, the idea is that this very remote future, it doesn't know big from small either. Mm -hmm. So the crazy idea is that this very remote future joins on to the Big Bang of a next eon. Mm -hmm. And our Big Bang was the conformally squashed remote future of a previous eon. Now, it's a completely wild idea because Mm -hmm. one tends to think, well, why, you know, how does this very stretched Mm -hmm. out, very rarefied, very cold, infinite remote future of an eon simply become the very concentrated, extremely hot and dense um, next Big Bang? Well, the thing is, because the geometry there is the conformal one, the big and small equivalent, Okay, you take people a lot of convincing to make sure yeah. that they believe this. But the claim is, that we're making, is that there are certain signals which you can, which do get through. Mm-hmm. And the first ones we're thinking were supermassive black holes running into each, into each other and producing a huge bursts of gravitational radiation which would give you signals which could get through. And we claim that there are such indications. Much stronger are the more recent observations. This is different, so one mustn't get them confused. The link between the two is supermassive black holes. But now, this is the black holes in the very remote future, basically swallowed up in an entire cluster of galaxies, and the entire, pretty well, most of the mass in that cluster of galaxies gets swallowed by the black hole. Yeah. Sits around, it sits around, it sits around, and eventually, Gets evaporates away by Hawking evaporation into into photons. You see, I used to think it's the very boring phase of the universe when you've got nothing but black holes left. What's really boring is when they've all evaporated away. <laughs> and so I was worrying about this in unbelievably boring universe. And then I began to think, well, who's going to be bored by it? Yeah, exactly. Right. That's the
2: <laughs> Only the eternity is a pretty long time. <laughs> That's right.
0: It's an awful long time, especially at the end. Been, <laughs> That's right. Said. But uh, the main point here is that photons don't experience eternity because mm-hmm. they've got no, no clocks, yeah, there's They're no clocks. Sorry. Yeah, they don't have clocks. Mm-hmm. So, that, so that infinity is no big, big deal to a photon, it just zips through into the next eon. Mm-hmm. And that's the view I had and tried to make it into a theory, and these Hawking points, which are the splodges, I would say, may, may Hawking splodge, but it's pretty circular, it would be. Mm. There would be spots in the sky about ten times, sorry, eight times the diameter of the full moon, mm-hmm, right. and you wouldn't see them any bigger than that. That's mm-hmm. definitely a prediction of the theory. Occasionally, a bit smaller, mm-hmm. but they would be slightly raised temperature. And I don't know. This is my suggestion that if you had a planetarium, mm-hmm. you know, usually the you see stars and planets and things like that. Have the microwave background on your planetarium with enough detail yes. that I guess the Satellite would reveal, and you look at it appet- and you would see them. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to know if that's mm-hmm. true.
2: Well, we have our beach ball behind you, which will, uh, yes, which could demonstrate a more, yeah. higher resolution. A minute, yeah, that's
0: right. You need a bit more resolution, mm-hmm. than that, yes, because right, I think the, the it's a little spot eight times the moon diameter would look like a mm-hmm. pinprick in that mm-hmm. model. So it needs to be a bit bigger than that. Mm-hmm. But the intensity overall is about fifteen times the average. Increased temperatures that you see. So the mm. the, new, the normal variations in temperature are what, ten to the minus five, and here you're looking at about ten to the minus four.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: A little bit, a little bit more of an intensity, mm-hmm. but probably not too obvious unless I don't know. I would expect, you, you know, you look at that in the sky and you'd you'd see them. Mm. I'd like to know. I'd like to have a good, well done yeah.
2: planetarium, and I'd like to sit in it and see. Yeah, whether you can see. Well, them. you and I both had the uh, pleasure at one point or another of speaking at the Hayden Planetarium. Mm. And when I spoke there, they were kind enough to project onto the dome the CMB map as revealed from from the Planck satellites. So maybe well, they we did can do that. They did do it. So maybe That's we can arrange it for your next visit to New York City. I'd love to see. Yeah, it, yeah. it's, it's like really enough. just a startling. It's almost induced vertigo in me, which was <laughs> <laughs> to be centered on this universe that I'd spent so much time studying. I would and, love. See yeah, them. it's quite beautiful. Well, you said so. nowhere to look for some of them, the five yeah. most prominent spots, right? I suppose, but and, uh, but it's
0: intriguing to know whether they're whether you would really see them with mm-hmm. the naked eye or not. Well, <laughs> the naked eye with looking with at microprocessing, like yeah, radiation. But so, that, you were asking me what, yeah, I mean, that's what excites me most at the moment because that's ongoing and you mm-hmm. can really see does this mm-hmm. conform to right, does the theory conform to the observations or not. The next thing I would say would be the state reduction experiments, Mm -hmm. which are a little way off, but not that long. Hmm. Mm -hmm. There are experiments currently being done, which within the next three years, maybe we'll get an answer. Hmm. There are other experiments. The one I'm thinking of are the ones by Dirk sir, Mm -hmm. and this is his estimate, and he's been pretty accurate in, in predicting how long his things will be, so I think he may have an answer. Of course, the answer may go the wrong way, as far as I'm concerned, but I hope mm-hmm. he will see mm-hmm. state reduction. That's a sort of deviation from standard quantum mechanics. Right. Of course, since it's a devi- deviation, a lot of people will complain and say, that's a bad experiment, it's due to decoherence and all that, so you'll have, have to persuade them <laughs> that it's a good experiment. But there are other experiments using Bose-Einstein condensates. I think they're probably the next Maybe they they will see effects. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I have a colleague in Nottingham, Yvette Fuentes, who right. has, has proposals which I hope will be uh, performed. Experimental. They, they haven't been set up yet. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is consciousness. Mm. The, here, there, you see. I think we're a lot longer. I think the we may see the effects in the not biological experiments, but the just the the physical physics experiments are being done now, mm-hmm. whether you will see the quantum effects in microtubules or what? Quite possibly. I think some general evidence for quantum coherence in biological systems might not be too long from now, but to see any direct evidence of connections with consciousness I think is a long way off. Mm because it's really such a slippery subject. Right. To to get hold of that in an experimental way may be really tricky, but maybe. Maybe.
2: Well, if Emperor's New Mind, which is still relevant now in its fifth decade after publication as any guide, uh, it's surely uh, to be expected that we'll have various new insights into these fascinating subjects that you've worked on. And I can't tell you how much we appreciate you here. Your graciousness, as always, in visiting us and sharing your ideas and, and opinions with us are really uh, very much appreciated. So, thank you, Sir Roger, for your visit, and uh, we look forward to many years of continued success.
0: Well, thank you very much much and i'm very excited to see how many how these experiments and the telescope in chile and all that will come along it really sounds like a very exciting project
1: thank you very much any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic thanks for listening to into the impossible keep in touch by signing up for professor keating's monday magic email at briankeating.com list and if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you a particle from the belly of an exploding star in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Please help make the show better by filling out our listener survey, linked to in the show notes. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us break the 100,000 subscriber mark on YouTube. And remember, always be curious.